I'll never forget that moment because, you know, any remotely sane, rational person would have been thinking, I'm in some serious trouble now. Like this is, this is going to be bad. I'm going to jail, whatever the other ramifications might be. And instead, all I could think was. Welcome to Ultra Habits. Here, we go under the hood with our guests to unpack the minutiae and to understand what processes and systems they engage or research that result in ultra enhanced living. Howdy folks, it's RJ Singh coming to you from Ultra Habits and we are here to introduce our next guest on the show. Now, when I started the journey of Ultra Habits, there were about 10 or so people that I knew I had to get on the show. I didn't know how and I didn't know when, but our next guest is one of those individuals and it is Charlie Engel, the author of Running Man and one of the most prolific endurance runners of our time. The man is an adventure racer. He's run throughout all kinds of jungles across the world. He's run through China. He's run 4,500 miles across the Sahara Desert in 111 consecutive days. People, that's two marathons a day across soft sand. The man has done it all and he's truly lived. So Charlie's journey started as a mid-tier runner in high school and ultimately college where he fell apart on the back of alcoholism and his journey took him to the depths of despair which all culminated in an event in wichita kansas where he ended up on the side of a road in handcuffs bullet holes ridden through his truck cops searching his truck and all he could think about was i hope they don't find the crack pipe so i can smoke it later that was his rock bottom people and from there it's been an upward trajectory the man has pushed limits beyond the capability of what we know to be possible of any human. And he's truly an inspiration. He is extremely charismatic. He's done a lot. He's spoken at companies like Google. He's helped kick off one of the biggest charities in the world, providing water to poor communities on the back of his run in Africa. And the man has just truly lived. And in this conversation, we talk about human potential human capability it's a conversation very dear to my heart as we talk about recovery addiction uh, addiction is a competitive advantage using some of those tendencies to really excel and it's a philosophical conversation and it's all to do with human performance and our untapped capability i really hope you enjoy the show guys it's going to be on youtube it's on the usual platform let us know what you think. Give us your reviews, the good, bad, the ugly. Like always, be brutally honest. Anyways, y'all, I'm going to let y'all go. Enjoy my conversation with Charlie. Peace. Well, Charlie, look, it's I, I love all my guests, but, you know, seldomly we do get guests on the show that have really had an impact on my life. And I must uh, unpack a bit of uh, my relationship to your story a few years ago, um, I was probably four or five years sober in recovery. I was in Australia and I just completed an MBA and I was looking for my next challenge. My wife told me I couldn't do anything for six months because we had a baby. So I had to do the right thing. And I started to get itchy feet. And I was like, you know, what am I going to do next? What's that next crucible? How am I going to continue to stretch myself? And early on in recovery, I, I was running. But when I started doing my MBA, I just didn't have the time to go for long runs. And I came across an interview that you did with Rich Roll. And I just knew, yeah, that's it. 
I signed up for an ultra. I had never run more than probably 10K. I signed up for an ultra. I had no idea that it was actually in trails. The race organizers were all worried. I was like, what, what are you worried for? Like, I'm, an, I'm a recovering addict, man. I could do anything. <laughs> like, <it's> a, <laughs> and that was the beginning of, a, I guess, the next part of my journey. So you really played an integral part in that. So just wanted to say thank you, man. I'm glad to hear it. I appreciate it. You know, it's uh, it is a journey. That's all it is. And too often people are worried about outcomes when they just need to be worried about getting to the start. Yeah. And there are so many nuggets in your story and, and wisdom. And, you know, it really hits home for me. And in fact, a friend of mine back in the U.S., he's ex-military, he's like, you need to get this guy on your show. And I was like, you know what? I actually... I've already read his book years ago, and that's when I reached out to you. And, you know, we all know those that know your story know um, it's one of recovery, uh, addiction, and just a whole bunch of crazy shit. But why don't you take us back to, I suppose, let's start at your rock bottom and around that time in Wichita, Kansas. That was a crazy story, right? Can you tell the audience, can you unpack that a little bit for us? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's... um... You know, at 29 years old, my first son was born and uh, I had struggled with addiction for about 10 years or so before that. And uh, I thought his I thought his birth and his mere presence on the planet was going to change everything. And that magically I was going to stop because, you know, as a father, I had this responsibility now and like surely I could stay sober for him. And I, I had tried, you know, I'd gone to rehab, I'd gone to meetings, I'd gone to church. I'd gone to a shaman. I think I probably tried to find a witch doctor at one point and like, you know, whatever I could find, I tried and, you know, and none of it worked. Uh, or actually better to say is all of it worked. I, I'm the thing that didn't work in the process. And so the situation you're referring to was a couple of months after the birth of my son. And I, I had this head of steam that I was going to stay sober for him. And uh, inexplicably, uh, I found myself driving to the worst neighborhood in town. I was working out in Wichita and I spent the next six days there, uh, in a dumpy, you know, $15 a night motel that I could no longer afford. And, uh, that binge ended with me sitting on the ground handcuffed, uh, and, uh, the police are searching my car and there's bullet holes in my car, you know, put there by somebody who was, you know, shooting at me, they weren't mad at my car. So, um, and, you know, it was this crazy moment where this, this policeman actually reached under the driver's seat and he, he pulled out a, a crack pipe. And I'll never forget that moment because, you know, any remotely sane, rational person would have been thinking I'm in some serious trouble now. Like this is, this is going to be bad. I'm going to jail, whatever the other ramifications might be. And instead, all I could think was, so that's where that was. Like, I looked for that thing for like two days. <laughs> you know, I wonder if there's anything in there. And, you know, and I mean, I, I like to make fun of it now because it was, you know, it was that kind of sick thinking, but that's where I was. So after six days of not sleeping, of probably not eating and certainly not drinking much in the way of anything but alcohol. I had the clearest thought that I've ever had. Nobody is coming to save you. Your son can't save you. Your boss can't save you. Your wife can't. No, no outside force 
is going to save you until you are ready to save yourself. And, you know, that was a real, that was the turning point, you know, I would say of my life because I just always thought that some, you know, the pressure from people who wanted me to quit, those were all the reasons that I was quitting and never for myself. And, you know, it just dawned on me finally that if I made this commitment, other people would continue to support me, but I had to go first. And so you reconnected with your love of running, which many people know of through your book, Running Man. And those that don't know, go get the book because it's unbelievably well, unbelievably well written. But you fell back in love with your running and something within your running journey really stuck out to me. uh, And you said it a couple of times that you really thought you can beat the addict out of you. Now, I know to a certain degree that running and that kind of exercise can be masochistic, but at the same time, it serves a purpose. So can you talk a little bit about how running started to help pull you out of or support your recovery? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. And and it's, um, look, that day in Wichita, I actually went to a recovery meeting that night. And, and I put my running shoes on the next morning and I ran for a couple of painful, <laughs> ugly miles. And, but what I did was commit to those two things. And I didn't know for how long I was going to do it. But for the next three years, I went to a meeting and I went for a run every single day. And during those three years, I mean, I ran something like 30 marathons in those three years, too, because... Obviously, I had that whole addiction thing under control. And and people did say, I mean, which is kind of what, you know, we're talking about when with this part is they would say, maybe you just switched addictions. And, and it took a while for me. I would hear that and think, yeah, you know, maybe I did. Maybe I'm still just as messed up as ever. But it took a while to figure out that wasn't true and that addiction is about being invisible and about not having any feelings. And if I had one, I would just drink it away or drug it away and running. And I'm sure most of the people listening to this understand running or biking or it's, there's nowhere to hide. Like you are fully present completely all the time. And that's why I do it is to be there. So during those three years, I ran as hard as I could every single time I went out the door. And as you said, I was trying to like, if I could have taken a scalpel and cut the addict out of me, I would have done it because I thought that guy was trying to kill me. And what it actually was, was during those three years, I figured out that the the addict and the obsessive qualities I have, those are all the best parts of me. Those are, without those, I wouldn't be good at, at anything. So it was about harnessing the power of addiction and no longer looking at it as a, uh, you know, some sort of mutant gene that I had and look at it more as a gift. And anybody that's been successful at anything understands that there are periods of obsession that you have to have in order to be successful. And so during those three years, I was obsessed with running and it, it gave me a life. Running saved my life. Charlie, I think it, it's, and you may have your view on this, like I feel within the recovery community, there's a vigilance towards addictive behavior or 
acting out in other ways, which is relevant. Um, but there tends to be this vilification of the addict who's trying to kill us. And I think their journey is ultimately to reconcile and integrate all of our uh, kind of personality traits. I think that it serves us a purpose early on in recovery to kind of vilify this addictive tendency or person within us that's trying to kill us because it creates this like existential threat. But I think over time, we need to kind of come into a more harmonious integration. And that's what you're talking about, right? Yeah, there's no way. I mean, we know there's no way to get rid of it. Like there's no, it is always there. And it is, what's funny is it's a contradiction in the program. And I'm not always, <laughs> I'm not always popular in the way. You're I not the poster child. <laughs> no, I'm not because 12 step recovery also played a great role in saving my life, but it's not my life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, running played a great role, but it's not everything. It's not who I am. I am a runner, but that's not who I am as a person. And I think that to take any part of us and turn it into something that we're doing battle with all the time. I mean, I understand in early recovery, I think there's value in um, taking almost a, a fighting stance and saying, okay, you know, screw you. I'm going to kick your ass. And like, it, you've been out on a bike or a run and you know how the wind is blowing 40 miles an hour in your face. There are times when I'm like, I, I won't, I won't curse right now, but I'm like, is that all you got? Like, you know, cause there's this, there's this sort of anger with something that you can't stop. Like the wind is a force. Our addictive nature is a force. And, and so consequently, uh, you know, I tried to beat it out of myself, but my, you know, strangely, my mother, who's like the hero of my book, she's the one who pointed out that my, addictive because she was a writer and my addictive qualities were all the best parts of me mm. she's like they're the things i love about you and that and that i hate he said she said i don't hate the those parts of you ever i hate the things that those parts make you do sometimes and you know so then it just became i realized it was it was up to me and if i could yeah if i could just harness that power and point it towards things i was passionate about and towards people i was passionate about and it became simple. <laughs> we know it's not this simple. All I had to do was just not drink or do drugs. Mm. You know, and if I could use that power otherwise, then it was going to take me a long way. Um, I digress for one second. Uh, talking about your mom, really, um, that, that when you reflected on your mother in the Ritual podcast, I think it's 2016 podcast. It really hit home for me because I'm from Contra Costa County, which you know well mm. in, in the East Bay. Yeah. And my mom used to, you know, rock up to countless, countless courts. And, uh, you know, I'd be pissing dirty. I'd be in and out of jail, juvenile hall. And I just remember one day we were in the car and she looked at me. She goes, RJ, I will never, ever give up on you. And like, it really... Like, and you know, as you get older, you reflect on the shit you put your parents through. And it's like, wow. You know, like her laying there for, you know, 10, 11, 12 years every night, wondering when that call was going to come, right? Like how I, I often wonder what type of damage I've done to my parents in terms of, you know, but um, 
Yeah, well, so- as addicts, as addicts, and I don't want to speak for all addicts, but I think I can, based on what you said, I can speak for you and I. We act, I recognized in me that what I was trying to do was to push those people away from me. Because like if I could, ju- I'd already given up on myself. So if I could just keep making a mess of things, eventually they'd give up on me. And I could say, see, I told you I was a piece of crap. Mm. And I was right. And I can just keep going down this hole forever Mm. and feeling sorry for myself. And so in a weird way, and I I would guess you felt the same in a weird way, having somebody that just refuses to give up on you is, is almost irritating in the moment because you, you, you just want to feel sorry for yourself. And, and we were lucky enough, you and I to have a couple of people in our corner that you know, they refuse to quit. Yeah, definitely. So let's, let's talk about your, you get back, you run these 30 marathons and then, you know, in your book, it's quite evident when you get tired of marathons, I think you accidentally sign up for an ultra in Australia. Funnily enough, you thought it was 5k and it's 50k or some crazy shit. (laughs) Um, Just as a matter of interest, do you remember where that was? Yeah, it was in the Nanango rainforest uh, outside of Brisbane. Right. And um, there was a guy. Oh, my God. I can't remember. I, I do this like once a year and I'm, I can't. There was a guy who ran 14,000 kilometers around Australia many years ago, like in the 70s or 80s. I want to say his first name was Ron, but it was like I I just signed up for this. As you know, I signed up for this race in Brisbane. I was there working. And so, and I had to drive a couple hours out into the rainforest. And I, uh, this is back in the day, there's no internet. There's no, you know, I was just running at a running store and I came into the store and I saw a little thing that said 5k this weekend. That's what I thought it said. And I tear off the little tab with directions. You know, it's lazy to finish the riding. Aussies. (laughs) there's no there's no google maps or anything right i just follow the directions out there i i hit a kangaroo on my way to the start and i'm an animal lover and i like you know i'm freaking out and i i literally i get there and there's a cute girl at the registration table she gives me my number i sign the thing whatever and i put my number on i'm listening to these guys talk these aussies and they're like hey mate they're talking to each other, not me. They're like, hey, mate, it's going to be a, it's going to be a hot one out there today. Yeah, I hope I can get finished before dark. And I'm thinking, these freaking Aussies are slow, man. What What is going on here? And, and one of them looks at me like, hey, have you ever done a 50K before? I'm like, no, why? And, and I literally, man, I look down at my number. I look down at my own chest and it says Nanango Rainforest 50K. And like, I just, I'd never run farther than a marathon. I didn't know people did that. And I'm like, who would be that stupid? And, you know, and so the rest of the story is history. I I sort of accidentally, I actually decided I'm going to run part of it because it's three loops. And I'll keep this brief. It's three 11 mile loops, basically 10 and a half. And, and like, I'm just going to do one loop. I mean, I ran over a kangaroo. I, so I hit Bambi of Australia. I like, and you couldn't even eat it because you're a vegetarian no exactly and so you know i'm gonna just do one loop though and leave so i do this one loop and it's hot as hell and like i'm not prepared i came there to run 3.1 miles 
I'm not prepared. I, I come around the final turn and there's an announcer like going, ah, here comes the Yank. Here comes the Yank. He's in, he's in 10th place. And I'm thinking, great. So I'm like representing all of North America now. And like, but I'm quitting. I'm quitting. I get to the line. I go to the table. I start eating cookies. And the cute blonde from the registration table, she comes over and she says, you're going to keep going, aren't you? And I'm like, oh, yeah. Publicly committed. (laughs) Because that's what that's what girls do to most of us men. So, you know, anyway, I continue on and I do reach a point in this race where it dawns on me. I have an opportunity to actually do something I've never done before and run farther than I thought I could run. And that sometimes the universe puts you where you need Mm. to be and you have a choice to make. You can either take advantage and I'm no hero. I tried to quit like five times, Mm. but it just kept pushing me forward. And then as you, as you know, I ended up winning the men's Mm. part of the race I mean, which is, again, totally by accident, although I was beaten by a woman who is a, um, uh, an Aussie pig farmer out there in the rainforest. There's a lot yeah. of that. There was, there was a guy named uh, Chuck, or there, there's an old guy who won this race from Melbourne to Sydney in gumboots. He beat Giannis Kouris, who you know. Giannis Kouris is like the Aussie legend, right? Of course, of and, course. And he he ran like it was literally the turtle versus the hare, and he just kind of shuffled all the way, and everyone slept, and he just kept going. He ran it in gumboots. And there's like oh a six-day race, yeah. I think, here done in his honor. It's some, yeah. uh, some weird cats out of here, man. Well, there's so much talent in the world, and I – the thing that not to get, I don't want to get you off track, but the thing that blows my mind about the entire planet earth is there are so many people with talent who somehow never get the opportunity mm-hmm. to do the thing that maybe they were meant to do, mm-hmm. whether it's music or athletics or economics or whatever it is, because we're, we're born into this world without any choice kind of where we where we land and circumstances very often dictate that, uh, you know, we don't necessarily get to live the life that we choose. And I just always find that fascinating. And I remind myself with gratitude, you know, how lucky I am to have had the chance. I've had my share of suffering, but I've also had the chance Mm -hmm. to take on a lot of things that have been meaningful to me. So all this running culminates into further running ultra marathons, adventure racing, and there's some crazy shit in your book in terms of the adventure racing. And you kind of did it half cocked all the time and you seem to get through. <laughs> it's the Charlie Engels style. <laughs> um, and you, it all culminates in this event in the Sahara where in typical Charlie Engels style, someone mentions to you, Hey, have you ever thought about running the Sahara? And you were like, well, that's the dumbest thing I heard. And then you actually start to bake the idea and you go into full execution mode. Can you talk about that journey, the Sahara journey for uh, people that don't know about it? <laughs> yeah. You know, we're, I think we're all so pliable, right? I mean, words said to us by a complete stranger can actually change the entire course of our lives. And I mean, I, I believe that that's the way it's supposed to be, you know, at least take two seconds to talk to the person on the airplane next to you. And then if you don't like them, you can raise your book, but you never know who you're going to meet. And if you close yourself off, 
nothing happens. But anyway, so this guy, you know, in the Amazon jungle, because that's where all the good things happen, uh, says to me, have you ever run a, thought about running across the Sahara? And, and you know, like you said, I said, okay. And, but I couldn't stop thinking about it. It's like he planted this earworm in my brain. And I got back to the U.S. and I did some research and lo and behold, I found out, you know, no one had ever run the entire distance of the Sahara that I could find any evidence of and um, go figure. <laughs> mm -hmm. And turns out for good reason. But I began to tell people that I was going to be the first person to run across the Sahara. And really, I had no, despite the fact that I'd done some crazy things up to that point, I had no real evidence that I was capable or that it was even possible. But firsts in the adventure world are really hard to come by. Like there's, there's not much that somebody hasn't done out there somewhere. And um, so I took possession of this idea. And people, even people who'd known me for years would say, that's so cool, Charlie, way to go. But, you know, that's not really possible. Like it's not going to happen. Like it's too hot. You know, there's nowhere to get resupplied. But like everybody wants to present the problems. And the addict part of me, I think, probably dug my heels in. And being a critic in this world is the easiest job there is. Anybody can tell somebody else that something can't be done. And I let those people own the impossibility of it. And I took full possession of the possibilities. And I you know, I just kept pursuing and, you know, I was working for a TV show back then called Extreme Makeover Home Edition, which is another weird story, but most people know that show. But I was the senior producer on this show and had been for a couple of years at that point. And I had some weird Hollywood connections at that time. And a friend, I think just to shut me up from talking about the Sahara, said that he would introduce me to a director. And this director, James Mall, had won the Academy Award for Best Documentary a couple of years before. I show up late to the meeting. I'm sweaty and lost and 15 minutes late. And I give the worst pitch of my life. I mean, like, I like threw up on his desk practically. You know, Sahara, like Tuaregs, sand, amazing, never been done before. Buzzwords. Yeah, it was like just total bullshit and awful. And I mean, I was already like leaving tail between he my legs and he, and he stands up and he puts out <laughs> his hand. He's like, I'll do it. <laughs> and it just, you know, it goes to show. And, you know, for business people or what, you know, you always give your pitch and you just never know. You know, you never know what's going to happen. The only thing you can know is if you don't pitch it, it won't happen. Mm. A week later, he calls me and he's like, hey, I told you I needed a production partner. And I just hung up with Matt Damon. And. Uh, Matt wants to executive produce this project and he also wants to be the narrator. Like, would that be okay with you? And I kid you not, I took a beat and I sort of deadpanned. We're on the phone and I deadpanned a little silence. I'm like, you know, James, I was really, you know, I was kind of hoping for somebody better, but you know, Matt Damon, fine, I guess. <laughs> right. Sure. I guess. That. So to be clear and look, Ultimately, Hans Zimmer ends up coming on board as the music director. And I mean, he's won yeah. 10 Academy Awards. And so I now have these three Academy Award winners attached to a project about me running across sand. And everybody, you know, my confidence is infectious. And everyone is like, yeah, it's going to be amazing. Meanwhile, 
in my heart and gut, I'm like going, holy shit, I have no mm. idea if I can do that. There's no, this isn't the Appalachian Trail. I can't no. go, I can't go to the bookstore and buy a book. You can't train for it either. You can't no, really, no way. you've got to adapt as you go, really. My training, the best training I ever did for running across the Sahara was being a drug addict, <laughs> you know, because I learned true and genuine suffering during those years and so to keep this part brief a year and a half later after these guys all come aboard there i am in senegal in west africa surrounded by my team uh, a film crew i asked two other runners and by the way one of those two was ray zahab and ray is this is the guy who in the amazon jungle asked me if i ever thought about running i didn't know and that so, yeah, so I, I showed him. I made him go with me. And Kevin, and right? Was, the, the, the dude, yeah, the tornado yeah. dude in China. Exactly. <laughs> Ray, had, Ray had been to the Sahara and done a 200-mile race in Niger the year earlier. Wow. So he had had a taste of it. And that's why, you know, he asked okay. if I'd ever thought about running across the whole Sahara. And anyway, we're there. Everybody's excited, ready to go. And all I can think is, you know, because addicts are the best salespeople in the world, mm. bar none. Mm. We we can sell people on our nonsense, like this is the last time, never going to happen again. I promise. Just give me 200 bucks. I'll go pay my electric bill. And like, it's like just all the all the absolute nonsense that came out of my mouth for all those years. Yeah, yeah. And, sure. you know, and not to look. Most of the time when I said that was the last time, I meant it because I was in such misery. But then three days later, I'd feel good again. It's like, ah, I could probably have two beers this time, despite the fact I'd never done that before. Yeah. But anyway, so um, I'm surrounded by all these people who are excited. All I can think is I have suckered all of these people to the Sahara and we are all going to die. Like <laughs> that, is, that is all I know. And a week later, we start the next day. Within seven days, we have hit sandstorms. We've run out of food and water. It's 135 degrees ground temperatures every day. Ray and Kevin are both on IVs. Two of my crew people have quit. And we've only, we've only covered like, you know, 200 miles. Like we've done nothing so far. And I mean, the production team almost pulled the plug. Mm. And, and, if there's anything that is important to me about talking about this story, it's this. I recognize the most important lesson I've ever learned in my life. And I've had to learn it many times in that moment. And that is, I was so focused on getting to the Red Sea. I was so focused on getting to the end of this thing that I forgot the lesson that I learned in sobriety, the mantra that we all know, which is one day at a time. And I woke up on day eight, and all I thought about in the morning was running a marathon before lunch. Mm. That's all I thought mm. about. In the afternoon, after a little break, all I thought mm. about was running a second marathon right. before dinner. Mm. And at the end of the day, I put my little mat on the ground and I stared up at a billion stars because there wasn't an electric light within 500 miles. And I gave thanks for the opportunity, not just to be alive, but to be out there suffering and learning and you know the the lesson there is <laughs> it's so true right now after this covid year that we've had the only miles i could run were the ones right in front of me 
And I needed to stop worrying about tomorrow's miles or next week's miles. And the metaphor fits with everything. Today, as I speak to you, like everybody else, I got, I got, you know, problems is a big word. I have challenges, you know, business challenges. Some are self-induced. A lot of my wounds are self-inflicted like most of us. Some of them are thrust upon me, but the only ones I can deal with are the ones I've got today. And that helps me just move forward all the time. Mm. And, and part of that story that I really want to touch on as well, and something that I've heard you say a couple of times is about how, yes, it was a selfish endeavor. And I understand I'm highly self-obsessed as an addict and a recovering addict. Yep. Um, I'm, I'm very much performance orientated, my own performance orientation, that is. But you, you had made a point that through your own personal mission and selfish endeavors, you can actually change or help the group. And you were able to do that uh, via water.org. And I had no idea what size and scope that, that, that um, initiative has grown to. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, thanks for asking that. Because I mean, <laughs> I am no philanthropist to this day. I still don't have, you know, my mission has never been to accumulate a pile. It's been to have enough to go do my next adventure, to live a good life and um, never have a real job if I can help it. But, you know, the, the athletic legacy of running the Sahara, and just to put it in perspective for the listeners real quick, you know, we ran basically two marathons every day for 111 consecutive days without taking a day off through every imaginable terrain you could think of, through every challenge you could think of, both physical and emotional. Um, and none of that compared to the legacy of the uh, event, the expedition, which was at first, the forming of H2O Africa. So Matt Damon and I formed H2O Africa and raised something like $6 million during the run and in the months after the run, when I started to screen the film not too long after. And then we, you know, I very uh, dramatically and romantically thought I was going to go back to Africa, like with a shovel and dig wells. Right. <laughs> because I, that's the that's the image of myself, my self-aggrandizing image. Needless to say, that wouldn't have been efficient. So um, we changed the organization to water.org. And today we are somewhere around one point five billion dollars. And we serve millions of people around the world in India and Africa primarily. And they don't know who I am, nor do, nor should they. And they don't even know, probably half of them don't even know who Matt Damon is. And, and, and that is the beauty of doing something selfish that's also selfless at the same time. All I cared about was I wanted to see if I was capable of doing this run. That was my primary mission from a personal standpoint. But I wanted to attach something to it that might make a difference in others' lives. And that's just it, man. The crazy idea that running across the Sahara Desert could manifest into something else um, turned out to be true. And, and it's, I'm incredibly grateful for that. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean, I think, especially within the athletic ultra community in any sport, 
there's a real opportunity because of the nature of the sport and being outdoors and in some remote places, there's been some athletes that have followed your, um, your lead in the sense by, um, you know, integrating philanthropy awareness, whether it's, uh, ecological challenges. I think there, I can't remember her name. The, 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 her name's Rebecca something. She, she, she rides mountain bikes and she does it. Yeah. She does. It does it on all these locations, right. Where there's kind of, there were war torn or issues like that. She was a, she was a teammate of mine in adventure racing years ago. Was she? Yeah. Rebecca Rush. She's, she's, she's a force is she (laughs) yeah she's awesome she she rode a bike through Iditarod or something right yeah yeah Yeah. and there's a movie about her and she was in Vietnam and her father was killed yeah he was a he was a combat pilot it's a great if anyone looks up Rebecca Rush you'd see the film was a a Red Bull film they call her I want to yeah I wanted I I know you're in the middle of a sentence but I want to say one thing that I I I think is important a lot of people are almost embarrassed sometimes about their philanthropy. In other words, mm-hmm. even a, just a, a quote unquote regular person will say, I'm running a marathon, but I'm doing it for Alzheimer's or I'm doing it for charity. I make no bones about this really important fact. The first person I'm doing something for is me. Mm-hmm. And I mean that not in a selfish whatever way, but, but I, you know, I am always trying to work on myself. And if mm-hmm. I don't work on myself, then I can't possibly help someone else. And so it is important for me to also recognize always that I'm going to go do something um, that I might bring attention to some other cause. And I love doing that. But ultimately, uh, you know, my hope is that I can learn something else about myself that might allow me to then help others. For sure. What I want to do now is dive into some of the gold within your philosophies and some of the things that you've just said. And I'm going to, I'm going to paraphrase um, it and, and have you dive into it in a little bit more detail. You said a few times that comfort is overrated and that you create your own hurdles. Can you talk about that uh, in greater detail, Charlie? Yeah. Well, so I give a lot of talks and I'm going to use an example from two days ago. Somebody <laughs> said, raised their hand and they said, you know, I just, you know, I just want my kids to have an easier life than I've had. And I'm like, why, yeah. what do you, what do you have against your kids? And <laughs> everybody sort of laughed. And, and I mean, and my point though was like, I asked her in return, do you feel like the hard lessons that you've learned and the difficult times you've gone through have made you a stronger better, more well-equipped person for this life. And she's like, yes, absolutely. I'm like, why would you want to take that away from your kids? I mean, I understand you don't want to, you know, we're not talking about physical harm or certain traumas, but I just mean in general, we need that challenge. And we have as a society, whether you're in Australia, the US or Europe or wherever, we have, we have been striving for comfort for like, a century now. It's like every innovation is something that's going to make our lives easier as if that's what's important. You know, and I don't know anyone, not the people that I run with, <laughs> figuratively and literally, mm-hmm. who have learned anything from the things that have come easy. You know, everybody that I know that 
I don't want to say a value, that sounds a little harsh, but you know what I'm saying? I mean, it's the people who have been through the most, who have seen the most of the world, who are open-minded and realize that there are all their stories all over the planet of, of suffering and hardship. And lot, a lot of that is really uh, without any choice on their part. Mm. I choose and you choose. And a lot of people listening to this, we have the luxury of choosing our hardship. We can say we're going to go run a marathon or a hundred miles or whatever it is, because we know it's going to suck at some point. I run 100 miles because I want to get to the point where I cannot go any farther and then find a way to get beyond that. That is why I do it. I don't remember. I ask people all the time, can you tell me about like if the marathon got difficult at 18 miles or 20 miles? Tell me something about the first 18 miles. People don't. There's nothing there. It was easy, like they got to that point and that's where it got interesting. The only thing we remember is the hard part and hopefully the strength that we found to get through it. I have to say something, and I've talked to Joe DeSena about this. In a way, sometimes when I expose this love of uh, purposeful suffering, as Joe would call it, to people that are literally struggling. Like I, I, I kind of sometimes feel silly when I think about the stuff that you and I and people like Joe do, when you think about, and maybe it's this kind of survivors or first world guilt I have about I'm out there trying to break myself and push myself into the pain cave because life isn't presenting enough difficulty for me. I find that to be really weird sometimes when I reflect on that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I definitely know. And I mean, adventure racing, and that's where I first met Joe back yeah. in the 90s. You know, we'd go through villages in yeah. Vietnam or Borneo or somewhere. And I'm, I'm literally wearing a Gore-Tex suit that is worth $1,000. Right. You know, and I'm embarrassed yeah. by, yeah. you know, the fact that, you know, I am in a way. But, but look, as I know we'll talk about in a moment, life also has a habit with all of us of preventing, of presenting challenges that we did not anticipate. And, I do believe that it's okay. We shouldn't feel guilty. Yeah. We shouldn't feel guilty about that. And that is the reason a lot of times that we attach a nonprofit or we try to do some good or, or tell a story. I mean, I also believe in that old premise that is in addiction recovery, which is it basically goes, you're only as sick as your secrets. <laughs> mm -hmm. And what I love about, about speaking about addiction and recovery and all of this is that um, I dump my stuff out. I, I, it's not that I don't have anything to hide in some prideful way, but we all feel um, shame and embarrassment about certain parts of our lives. I mean, everybody, whether you're an addict or not. And what I've come to understand is the more of my struggle that I share with people, the, um, the more I'm welcomed and supported and people relate to that much more than they relate to the person that's only telling stories of victory. And Joe and I, Joe's philosophy, <laughs> Joe will sometimes just do like pain for pain's sake. He's, he polarizes, um, definitely. Joe's, Joe's, yeah, yeah. 
He's yeah, like so, David so do some, in that sense. Oh, well, I wasn't going to say that, but you know, that's not my style. Yeah. I, I want, and I have total respect for those guys that yeah, make sure. their own thing and, yeah. and they inspire a lot of people. Yeah. But in my view, that sort of inspiration is short lived. You know, you, you can be inspired by a drill sergeant. If you're in the military, you can be inspired by a tough boss at work. You can be inspired by, you know, a parent who's, who's a bit overbearing, but ultimately you have to find that within yourself. And it is why I go back here. Here's the, you know, again, very briefly, like, I know when I run like a hundred miles, I am going to hit a, there's going to be a point where I'm like saying, what the hell was I thinking? How many times is it going to take me to learn that this sucks? Like, why am I out here? But, but then it's like, okay, hold on. You know, never quit anything when you're at a low moment, because that is the time when you, you absolutely shouldn't quit. Instead, use your experience to evaluate the situation. I know at mile 70, when I feel terrible, I need to eat. I need to drink. I need to like pound a thousand calories. I need to drink a gallon of something and I need to just keep walking. I need to just keep moving. And magically, it may take 20 minutes. It may take an hour, but I will actually feel better. Even if that means going from a 10 on the main scale to an eight, it all of a sudden feels like a huge weight lifted. And only experience teaches me that. Because in, whether we're talking about at a job, a relationship, marriage, um, or, or an event, when we hit that low point, our mind is telling us and our body that we're going to feel this shitty for the rest of the event. Mm. Or as an addict, we're going to feel this bad for the rest of our lives mm. or in a, in a tough patch in a marriage, like this marriage is going to suck like this forever because that's the way we're kind of built. Like we, we project that moment mm. way out into the future. Normally, if you just let it go by, just let mm. it gently pass by. If it's real life, get a good night's sleep, wake up the next day and things magically, you know, look different. And I, I think that's the value of entering hard events because you learn time and time again how not to quit when things get hard. Yeah, I would definitely agree that addiction um, and the illustrative examples that addiction has provided to me in addiction and in recovery that I can surmount the present situation has created a competitive advantage for me. Uh, yeah. And David Goggin says one thing which I think you would relate to. He says that his ability to succeed in hard tasks is largely predicated on the fact that he can clearly see himself at the end versus the current situation, yeah. right? So, that, so his, his vision of him at the end is so strong, it pulls him out of the temporary shit that he's going through. And I think that's, there's something to be said there. And there's a couple of things you touched on there. You said- never quit at your lowest point. You've also said never quit at your highest point. Right. Yeah, well, those times aren't, they're not real, right? Low points and high points aren't actually real. We don't stay as human beings in those places for very long. <laughs> the low ones, it feels like we're there forever. The high ones feel like they're gone in an instant. But the fact is we live most of our lives in this sort of middle ground of just kind of this roller coaster and these highs and lows and 
you know, I think what adventure sports has really taught me is the beauty of, and it sounds like this sounds like woo woo talk, but the beauty of being present of being, you know, in this moment. And while I definitely agree with what you said about uh, Goggins and visualizing the end to go back to my Sahara story, that was actually almost my doom is I was so focused on being finished that I forgot that it really is about like, I hate to be so cliche that it's the journey, but it really is the journey. Frankly, finishing the Sahara was anticlimactic. Like yeah. there was, there was nobody there. Yeah. There was like, I, I felt terrible. I had a massive blister on my foot. I just wanted to go like, I just wanted to be at that point. I wanted to be done, but the drive to get there was so powerful. And I think that's what keeps a lot of us going. Look, business is the same way for most people. Starting a family is the same way. Like, you know, you, you think, for example, that, um, you know, you want to, uh, I don't know, take on some big challenge and the obstacles are just simply, you know, too hard and we want everything in place. I remember when I, when I finally, when my first wife and I had kids for like two years, we're like, okay, we need this much money in the bank and we need to get our car paid off and we need to have this and that. None of that shit happened. And finally it's like, okay, let's just, let's get pregnant and have a kid Mm -hmm. and then we'll figure it out. And that's what happened. You know, we, we learned along with, you know, this Mm -hmm. child. And I think that's, for me, that's the way life really works is you, you can do all the planning you want, but ultimately uh, it's about adaptability and about adjusting to the changing circumstances. One of the things that, and that dovetails into something that you talked about, um, you put really beautiful language to it. I think that a competitive advantage is, uh, when you can be guided by curiosity, I think that's a real competitive advantage, like true curiosity. Uh, I think it's rare. And it's something you had touched about um, in your interview with Mark Devine, maybe you said that you, you're guided by your love of uncertainty. That was brilliant. Thank you. Yeah. That was absolutely well, I mean, brilliant. I, I mean it. You know, I'm. And I don't know, man, you know, I don't, I feel so lucky to be an addict (laughs) and to understand that I freely tell people there's a part of me still today that is punished. I don't mean to say punishment. It's not that, but I, I still struggle with self-worth and imposter syndrome. And do I really belong here? And like, People like might admire me from afar or might hate me from afar, whatever, whatever they might be feeling about me. But um, it, it, it makes me feel unworthy of their attention even. And so I still struggle with uh, my value. And so when I go run 100 miles, I also I freely admit. And this is why, you know, I'll hopefully be in therapy of some type for the rest of my life and not in some negative way, because my journey is about learning as much as I can. But is is that I am still in some way searching for the best parts of me, like that I haven't quite uncovered that one more thing. And I it's funny, only when I do a podcast or maybe when I write something, do I ever even talk about what I've done? Because I'm Generally speaking, I'm completely uninterested in the past. Yeah. And 
it's a it's a pleasure to always talk about it, especially with someone like you that really has a, a deep appreciation for all the the nuance. You know, but I think the way we're built is I, I also need to always be thinking about that next thing. You know, I need the drive of what's yeah. what's coming down the road. I think there's a real and you actually said something to the effect of this, too. And I, I do agree that. And I think in the recovery community, I mean, I'm 11 years sober and I find myself disconnecting more and more from my story if that makes sense. Like I feel yeah. real move away. And sometimes I, I find I don't attract the newcomers in the room because of it. I attract the people that are four or five years sober now. Right. And I think that's just a journey. Um, but I do feel a lot. I don't feel that intense connection to my story. And you've said it and I'll paraphrase, like you can leverage your story, but you're not your story. Right. Like, yeah it up and use it when required but at some point it's important to move away from it i think right yeah well and i mean in my book i think that that it's exemplified in the simple fact that as i always like to say like i'm sober by page 65 <laughs> <laughs> like i didn't want to write a book that was when i signed with simon and schuster and we i started writing this book i told them i'm not interested in writing a running book even though it's called running man it's like mm -hmm. I don't want, for me, a lot of runners do this and I respect them for doing it. I don't want to write the story of, I went and did this event. It was hard. I struggled. I found my way past it. And here's what I learned. And then I went and did this event and the same thing over and over. Like I wanted to, I wanted to talk about my struggle as an addict, but I wanted to get it out there and done in the book. And then continue the struggle and the learn learning lessons as just a, you know, a human being for the rest of the book. And that was really important for me uh, to not stay in that part of my story. You, and from what you just said, I know this to be true. You know, the way that you remind yourself um, what's waiting for you, should you ever decide to go back to that old life, is to just go to meetings, listen to newcomers, hear the stories, um, be reminded of what, you know, what will happen. I got a question two days ago. I got this question too. Like, couldn't, so couldn't you, these were, a, it was a group of young people. <laughs> and this girl is like, couldn't you just have one beer? Yeah, oh like, God, the I'm question. Like, I'm like, yes. I'm like, yes. But actually, I might steal I everything you got. <laughs> right. I'm like, I'm like absolutely. Box. Today, today, could I have one beer? Yes. Tomorrow, could I have one beer? Probably. Next week, next month, I, it might it might go on that way for a year or two, but I would have two beers eventually, and I would have all the beer eventually. Like and it crack. just, <laughs> yeah. And then I'd be on the phone to I'd I'd be probably pulling up old numbers from 29 years ago trying to find my crack dealer, you know. And you know, it's just like I know that that's where it would lead. And even more importantly, why would I have the beer? I mean, if I could take a, I was, it's weird to say take a pill, but if I could take a pill right now and no longer be an addict, like take that part away and drink like a normal person, not for all the money in the world would I do that? Because it's just not, why would I want to be that? I'm not an addict, like that's not the core of who I am, but I understand that it's those those parts of me, as I said earlier, that 
that drive me and that make me care sometimes too much and make me want to go do and discover. Look, man, I am a cultural explorer. I'm not even a runner. I don't even like to run that much. I mean, it's not running I like, it's stopping, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, the, a lot of times the good, the best mm. endorphins and the mm. feelings and whatever, they come when mm. like, it's a, sure, there's those moments when I'm in the mo woods or a beautiful mountain range where I'm looking around going, God, this is, if I wasn't a runner, I would never get a chance to see this. And those are beautiful moments. But in general, running is just, it's just a, an ingrained part of my life. And it's the feelings that I get from it. It's also the only time when my brain calms down. Like I, if I could be running and talking to you right now, I would do that because I'm not nearly as like, you know, manic and all over the place. Because hmm. as I say, I have, I have like, there's a roulette wheel in my head. And instead of one ball, there's about a hundred ball. There's this, there's a ball for every spot. And when I run is the one time when every ball finds a spot. And like it settles yeah, okay, down. Yeah. You, you know who you remind me of, and I've never spoken to him, but I'm sure you have many times is Dean Carnazaris. And like every, yeah. he, he seems to be very much of that ilk where he just needs to be moving all yeah. the time. Probably even I more talked so to him you. yesterday. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, he just came out with a new book, which right. I'll happily, I'll happily uh, push for him. It's called A Runner's High, actually. Which right. Is okay. Kind of funny, right. Yeah. 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 And uh, it's probably not out in Australia yet, or it might be, but uh, it just came out this past week and it's, it's good. I've got a copy of it right around here somewhere, they, but they it's brought him uh, out they, a year, a, a year ago to yeah. run a hundred oh, yeah. in Queensland. He did it. Yeah. It, it wasn't easy for him, but he did it. In the Sunshine I actually Coast. have to, I'm not going to, I can't tell you about the details, but I'm going to tell you one thing right now. If all works out, Dean and I are going to be in Australia no in August. In August Where? for, uh, I can't tell you. It's going to be New South Wales. Though. Well, that's where New I live. South Wales. I know. So I don't. I can't. I'm not authorized to make the announcement. He at this was point. here. He was actually yeah. here a year and a half ago, maybe. Yeah. Or, yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. 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 And he that's actually great. went to like. He was an exchange student in Australia when oh, he was okay. a kid, and like he has a pretty deep connection. With, but, but there's some Aussies involved in this this thing we're going to do, and I I will. It's a, it's a good tease, and you can you can put it out to your people as soon yeah, as you're sure. ready to make an announcement. It's not my project. There's an Aussie okay. that's heading it up, and I'll uh, I'll I'll give you all the details later. But I'm excited. So hopefully, come August, you and I might be able to get in. Uh, a few miles together for and... sure for sure I, I i would totally look forward in, in fact um i'm running one of joe DeSena's. he's doing spartan trail now that you're probably yep. aware of and they're they've been i launched race. it well did you we're gonna race <laughs> yeah. in brisbane yeah. go to i was the five. i was the um uh it was uh me and um uh my friend lewis and but I was the first race director. So I, I wow. directed seven, seven or eight of the races two years ago. And uh, Joe and I have been friends. And there's a guy named David Watson, who's the head of product. He's the head of all the races for Spartan. And we're best friends. And, uh, oh, he's an Aussie, actually. Really? I forgot that. He lives, in, he lives in Singapore. But his family is all from somewhere around Melbourne. David Watson. And, uh, yeah. 
So old timers yeah, all excited. move together, don't you? It's like you guys are. Do. It's like you're the old timers in the back of the room. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> David's closer to your age. He's a young guy, but you know, um, maybe we can get him to come in August too, and just we could have a big party. You'll have to do a podcast with the well, whole. We can uh, do one live because I, I I like to do them live, but because yeah. I'm in Australia, I don't always get the chance to. Right. Well, we're going to do one in August and I'm going to tell you, I'll tell you about it offline. You just can't announce it yet. So all right, all right. And, no uh, we'll, we'll talk more. So, yeah. Well, look, I, I want to dive into something else. Um, and your story just gets wackier and wackier. So you're sober, <laughs> you get caught up in some, you're like the, you become the, the, the scapegoat for the global financial crisis, Charlie Engel from Indeed. North Carolina uh, on some 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 weird uh, mail, like you you know they say you you didn't fill out a form correctly. Anyways, you end up in federal prison, which is another interesting story. And there was something that you said in an interview, and I think it's really relevant for people that are facing situations that are less than ideal because there's a lot of complaining and whinging and kind of why me and as we say in the rooms, well why not you right? So you said when you ended up going into prison on Valentine's Day, you didn't want to become someone's Valentine's, obviously. But you, in that moment, had to decide who you were going to be. Talk about that, Charlie, because that's super important. Like, at what point do we move beyond the situation and figure out, well, what the hell we're going to do? And how did you actually get the skills to come to a place of being able to do that? Yeah, well, you know, I, I I feel like I do need to say, like, if anybody wants more info, of course, it's like right on my website. <laughs> like there were New York Times front page articles. I was on the Daily Show, unbeknownst <laughs> to me, with Jon Stewart, you know, and I mean, basically, I was the only person in the United States to be charged with overstating my income on a home loan application from 2005. And for that, I could be sentenced to 21, 21 years in federal prison. And long story short, I went to trial, was found not guilty of that, but on a technicality, guilty of mail fraud because I signed a closing package and it had false information in it. I didn't put it there. Mortgage broker put it there. He admitted to putting it there and, and signing my name to it, but it didn't matter. I signed the deal. That made me guilty. And I was dropped off by my two teenage boys at federal prison. I was booted off the board of both of my uh, nonprofits that I started. I lost every sponsor, every speaking gig, every, you know, you name it. It was, you know, it was all gone. And to your point, um, I was dropped off to prison and I basically had to decide when I got there, I was. Yeah, I was sad and I was a little scared and I was really pissed off. Mm-hmm. And were you, I, can, can I ask you a question, Charlie? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Were you, when you were going through that, were you doing the inventory? Like, were you, were you, did you up your recovery game? Like, well, how did you manage that whole piece? Not only did I up my recovery game, but I, but I nearly, you know, <laughs> I did nearly relapse. And right. I, I basically, you know, I pretty much said there was a part of me, I had a, I had a surgery, I had a knee surgery before I went into prison um, because my knee, I had a torn meniscus and I knew I needed to get that repaired. And 
you know, the person who was helping me at that time didn't really know we were friends and they knew I was sober, but it doesn't occur to most people to not get the prescription of like, you know, oxycodone or whatever. And, and so like, I'm staying at his house and like, there's beer in the fridge and I, I remember the okay, pills. Yeah. 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 And like, yeah. and I literally, I got a pill out and I put it on the counter. I got a beer out. And I remember I opened, that. Yeah. Like I cracked cool. that thing open and I sat there and looked at that stuff. And I don't know what I was going to do. I don't know. But my mother actually called me on the mm. phone at that moment. And my mom was in the early throes right. of Alzheimer's disease. And she, I got goosebumps just saying mm. that out loud. And she called me and she was confused about where her glasses were. And I mean, she lived in Virginia. Like I was nowhere near her. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's this, it was this interesting moment that stopped me in that moment from making a terrible decision. And um, so anyway, I got, I got through that period of time. I reconciled with the fact that I was going to prison. And look, w once I got there, here's what happened. And this is probably the best way to put it. Like I did have to decide who, was I, who I was gonna be, but the most important thing that happened to me is the day after I got there, I met the guy in the cell next to me. Black gentleman, early 60s, got a 25-year sentence for one gram of crack cocaine. He had gotten arrested for shoplifting. Two minor shoplift, like one was a candy bar, the other was like just nonsense. And his third strike uh -huh. was one gram. It wasn't a pound, all right? One gram of crack cocaine. And he got a 25-year sentence in prison. And he was, he'd already done like 22 years when I met him. His whole life practically was taken away. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to consider what was happening to me unfair. So perspective mm -hmm. very often is the best teacher in life. Yeah. You know, if you can get out of your own ridiculous head and look <laughs> around and see that someone else probably has it, that's the true unfairness. Here I was, some middle-aged white guy going to prison for a year and a half, basically, and was it unfair? Absolutely. Front page of the New York Times. It was it was a total bunch of nonsense. But it actually I wouldn't yeah, I wouldn't even give that back anymore. Like it sounds crazy to say that that chapter in my life that I wouldn't like give that back and have a do over. But I, I wouldn't because it taught me perspective. When I got to prison, and this is the, the premise of attraction rather than promotion that we all learn in addiction recovery. You could talk all you want, but ultimately it's about how you behave. Every, somebody is watching you. You're a mentor to someone, even if you don't know it. And you have mentors that you are watching out there in the world that you might never say a, world, a word to. But that's how the world works. So I go into prison and what do I do? I start running. Same as always. I run around this little dirt track around the basketball court and softball field. And people made fun of me. Like I'm this, I'm this old white dude shuffling around the track. And it's like, I got this nickname running man. That's where it came from. And like, there's this weird, almost middle school feel of people like, what are you doing, man? Where are you going? Like what? All of that. But I did it every day. And you know what happened? People started coming up to me one at a time and saying, hey, can, mm -hmm. you know, can you help me run? Can you help me run? I'd like to lose some weight. I want to whatever, whatever their thing was. And 
had I gone to them and say, hey, you want to mm. join my running group? <laughs> like federal prison is not the place to tell someone they need to lose some weight. <laughs> did people like, also, hey, man. Charlie, did people also, were you guys, was there AA? Like, were you guys doing that? No, so, zero. Right. Zero. Wow. You want you want to, I mean, I don't, now I'm going to get on my soapbox for one sec, but 80% of people in federal prison are there for some drug related mm -hmm. reason dealing, using, whatever that thing might be, yet there is no addiction treatment in the federal prison system. There is in some state systems mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. county and whatever, but in the federal prison system in the U.S., there is no addiction treatment, none at all. There's one bit of drug education, which basically means if you had a 20-year sentence for drugs, the year before you get out, you take the drug education mm -hmm. program and it amounts to this. You suck, you're a burden on society and your family, don't do drugs. Like that's, the, that's basically the end of it. It's the most ridiculous thing ever. And nobody gets out better. No. Like you don't get out of prison. It's a self-perpetuating money-making machine. And I don't know what it's like in Australia exactly, but if you don't believe that prison is just an industry, then you're not paying attention. There's lobbyists who pay billions of dollars to politicians to keep everything the way it is. You know, prison is a place meant for people that we are afraid of as a society, not just people that we're mad at. <laughs> you know what I mean? And like so many people are there for debts they didn't pay or for like a gram of friggin' marijuana or some nonsense. And you know, that was never what prison was intended for. But anyway, so I get there and there's maybe three guys running regularly around the track. By the time I left a year and a half later, I had a running group of 50 guys running with me every you single did day. You Badwater there, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. The day that Badwater came around, I had to make a really sneaky plan because yeah. technically I was not allowed to run more than three miles at any given time. I don't know if they thought I was just going to run away from the prison one day. <laughs> you might run into the ground. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I did. I ran Badwater over two days. I ran 85 miles the first day. I had to keep going inside for because there's five count times where you have to be in your cell every day. And, you know, before oh, that, yeah. man, there were times where we would be in lockdown, you know, in the first few months I was there and I would run sometimes for five or six hours in place in myself. And, you know, I did it because I needed it. I needed that, that release. I you needed it onto the burpees. Joe would have loved you. Did oh yeah. You? <laughs> oh yeah. I was doing burpees and I'll tell you what, you want to see some guys. I mean, Dude, I watch guys do 500 push-ups. That's oh, crazy. At one, at one time or yeah. do 100 pull-ups. I mean, David Goggins may hold some kind of pull-up competition record, but that's just because guys in prison don't know about it. <laughs> they can't compete. <laughs> I can guarantee call. you that's that. That's a great call. I guarantee you that. Yeah, it's a but, great call. you know, I also did, like I did, I started doing yoga by myself on the softball field. And you want to talk about getting made fun of, you know, but by the time I left there, I had 25 guys that were doing yoga with me on the softball field three days a week. And it's the law of attraction rather than promotion. If you see someone else who's doing something and you might think it's stupid, all of a sudden you notice their life is getting better than yours <laughs> or they're happier or they're just healthier. 
then it's natural tendency to go talk to that person. You know, I'm a plant-based eater. I don't ever like push my beliefs or the things I, you know, feel around plants or animals or any of this stuff on people. Mm -hmm. I do talk about what I do. And if someone wants to ask me a question, it's like, to me, it's my view, like that's how religion should be. I'm not, I'm a spiritual person, not a religious person. If people ever actually wanted to attract me to a church, then just live your life. And if I see the way you're living, mm. I might actually come up mm. to you and say, hey, man, I really like the way you yeah. do your thing. You know, how do you do it? And then that person might say, well, you know what? I belong to this church. And then I might go, wow, okay. that's really interesting. I might check that out. But I don't like things getting shoved down my throat. And I don't think any, and I'm sorry, I don't mean that as a religious comment, but anything. Yeah. I don't want anybody else's lifestyle forced upon me. And I, I don't want to force my lifestyle on anyone, but I will, I will make it public. And if they see something that's interesting and they want to know more, they can ask me about it. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And, and, and as we kind of wrap this up, I really want to focus on Charlie Engel moving forward. Now I've heard about this 5.8 Kuiper, which is another uh, saga that no doubt uh, you're going to be moving into. Now, can you talk a little bit more about the the, the 5.8 challenge? Yeah, well, we've just spent the last hour basically talking about the highs and lows of life, right? Mm. So when I was in prison, I, I literally came up with this idea. I said, you know, I wonder if anybody's ever gone from the lowest place on the planet, uh-huh. the Dead Sea, uh, to the top of Mount Everest, the mm-hmm. highest place on the planet. And I, I started researching. And in fact, there was a cyclist who many years ago was able to do it, but he did it across Afghanistan, Pakistan, you know, Iran and Iraq. And needless to say, I don't think that's going to happen in my lifetime. <laughs> At this point, I can't imagine that part of the world being, uh, I would probably take the chance of doing it, but I don't think I would ever be allowed, you know, to do right. it. So, but I, the metaphor is obvious, right? Low places, the high points. And so I made the decision that um, instead of starting with that one, I would start with the other six continents. And so I will be, you know, I'll do it in Australia. I, I'm sure people have done it in Australia before because it's, you know, although it is a little different, it's not sea level is not the lowest place in Australia. It's Lake, Lake Air, I think. All right. OK. Is. And so, you know, you'd have to go from there to top of Kosciusko. But it's, you know, um, that's a very doable challenge. There's mm-hmm. not, you know, obviously the mountain isn't hard to climb. And mm-hmm. but I, I came up with this idea that I would do this on all seven continents. And I I started with Africa in 2019 and did 2,500 miles from um, basically Djibouti. There's a lake in Djibouti in East Africa across Ethiopia, um, all of Kenya into Tanzania to the top of Kilimanjaro. And I'm going to start releasing some footage from that on YouTube coming up in a month or so. So keep an eye out. I'm going to do episodes and it's being, I'll, I'll give you a heads up when it happens because it's pretty cool. But, you know, the idea is that I just, you know, I, I want to continue to find adventures. Uh, look, man, I never claim records and I, um, 
I think that it's interesting in a way to uh, I've never been interested in like Guinness records or things like that. It's I like to do things that haven't been done before, which is which is cool. But um, there's always a better athlete out there. Yeah, there's always yeah. a be- like I'm not I never said like I, I just do my own thing. And this is my way of reminding people that um, life is a journey of highs and lows and always striving from those low places, which won't last forever to the high places, which won't last forever either is is important. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it works in family life. It works in business Mm -hmm. life. It works in loving each other. Uh, I just spent last week, this is a weird side story. Last week I had three days with Deepak Chopra and his team and working on an addiction project together. And it's something I'll, we'll talk more about, you know, another time, but it's, it's, you know, it's about continuing to strive and look for, um, I don't know the search, as he says, Deepak says, it really is the search for answers. And then the answers just bring more questions. (laughs) You know, and that's, you know, my, my goal is to continue. I'm 58 years old now. I'm pretty healthy. I'm running bad water again this year in a couple of months. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm most interested though. Bad water is like the only race I ever go back to. Yeah. It's because, your favorite, right? Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't want, you mentioned something early in this podcast. I'm going to bring it back up because I think it's so huge. People will very often go back to the same races or they'll run nothing but marathons. And like, I used to ask people, I'm like, so you've done 50 marathons. And this is from somebody who's done a lot of marathons, but you've done 50. Like when you tow the starting line, do you ever feel nervous about being able to finish? And they're like, no, no, I'm confident. I'm like, well, don't you miss that? Yeah. It's like, what is the point? Like occasionally, at least you need to embark on something where you're going oh my god i have absolutely no idea do you think they're more speed orientated i I often wonder that i mean it's part of the reason i don't like running road but do you think it's just for them it's more speed orientation and time and hey and again you read my book i freely admit i spent like 10 marathons trying to break three hours and I finally gave up on it after running like 301 twice. Yeah. And then when I stopped trying so damn hard, <laughs> I did it. And then I did it like 50 more times. Right. So it, it somehow I got over that hump. But I don't know. I think time goals can be good. They can, of course, be motivating. Mm-hmm. And we want to. But if you're like me, I want to keep doing this forever. Clearly, yeah. at 50. I'm not getting after anymore. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, the the odds of me breaking three hours in a marathon again, because that's not really my my goal or my purpose. I like to think if I really set my mind to it, I could, but I'd probably have to take a year of training. Yeah, and right. Just focus on that to do it again. Cause I'm not that fast. I'm not no. that I broke three hours like 50 times, but I never broke 250. Mm-hmm. Right. So I, I didn't have that kind of speed. But I want, but I know there are, dude, there's so many corners of this globe that I haven't Mm. seen yet. And so many people that I haven't come in contact with. And that is the lifeblood. You know, my, my wife lived in the Amazon jungle uh, for about five years. She's one of the world's preeminent bird experts. Mm. She's an ornithologist. And so I dream now what I dream of is spending a year in South America and really exploring Peru and Colombia mm-hmm. and Ecuador and 
and you know understand stay away from the cocaine charlie (laughs) 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 at least at least it'll be cheap Uh, you know at least i would i wouldn't have to empty out my bank account or there'll be no cacao left after charlie engel leaves (laughs) i always said the the other day some guy was saying to me yeah of course (laughs) some guy was saying right about the whole switching addiction things thing he's like didn't you just switch it i'm like look dude i can tell you this i've never lost my car you know after a long run yeah i spent i've you know after a six-day binge I've misplaced my car many times, yeah. you know, and I had yeah. to wait until somebody towed it to the tow yard before I could find it again. So, but anyway, I, dude, I, this has been great. I'm, I'm sure I gave way too long answers for a lot of questions. No, but no, no, no. Was, Look, Charlie, oh. and I've, I've actually got um, another question for you. Our, our last question um, before you tail off there um, for our listeners in terms of, you know, we're interested in our guests, uh, as we say in the rooms, design for living, I call it systems for living. What would be your number one, I suppose, habit that supports your design or your system for living that you can impart? Uh, wow. What a great question. Um, you know, it's funny. I'm a very undisciplined person, which probably isn't surprising. I have never kept you know, I've never kept a running log once in my entire life. I don't track mileage. I don't, to me, it's a waste of time. I understand for a lot of people, it's a very important part of their daily routine. So I'm not, Mm -hmm. I'm not dissing it, but for me, I what I care about is how I feel today and how I approach this day. So the most, and I'm going to answer the question this way. The most important part of my day is when I wake up and I wake up, I lay in bed, I, you could call it praying. Again, I'm a spiritual person, but I take a few minutes, I do some breath work. I do not allow myself to touch my phone for the first 30 minutes of the day. And I know, so I get people in an audience who will say, I can see them like almost like looking away <laughs> embarrassed because I know they do, the, they do the same thing that I did for years which is the very first thing I do while I'm still laying in bed during those years was to pick up my phone and look at it as if some text or email had come in overnight that couldn't possibly wait until I get up and have a cup of coffee and begin my day. And the best change I've made in the last five years is to not do that, is to allow myself those those very few precious moments to ease my way into the day and give some thanks and perspective to the day before I get started. Brilliant answer. I've thoroughly enjoyed our time together, Charlie. I, um, I'm going to hit you up offline and make sure that I'm following your movements. And if you do come to the land down under, I'm going to be all over that. We can do something live because you will be in my home state. And I live in a beautiful part of New South Wales, uh, where we have lots of trail running, lots of trails where I'm at, lots of trails that run through beach. It's an interesting landscape that you wouldn't probably have where you're at. Uh, I suppose you are you yeah. on the East Coast still in the US? I am. Yeah. yeah. Um, but anyways, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Can you tell our listeners where they can find you? Yeah. 
Mine is the easiest ever. It's just, but if you go to my website, which is just my name, charlieingle.com, all the social media is there. I mostly do Instagram. I am a, um, it's not because I'm old. I'm a reluctant social media person. I recognize it's a necessary part and I like to tell stories on there. Um, but I try to be just like, you know, fun and entertaining and have a good time. But if they go, I do a blog, which I've, I'm way behind on posting much on it lately, like most people. But, uh, you know, if you just go to charlieingle.com, um, you can do it that way. And my book's for sale in Australia, too. Normally, I say I would send one, but I'm not mailing one there. So unless you want to pay for it. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right, Charlie. Thank you so much for your time, man. All right, RJ. Take take care of yourself. And uh, it was great. I look forward to doing it again.